We are going to be talking uh, Advent today. Um, this passage of scripture, um, when I was reading my Bible, I had finished the book of Revelation, and I have this super sophisticated Bible reading plan, and it works like this. I just read it every day. Um, and so I finished Revelation. Well, the natural thing to do is start back in Matthew, right? And I do read out of the Old Testament every day as well, but... Um, I was reading the first few verses of Matthew, and they really struck me on um, uh, something that we'll get into today. But I did want to talk a little bit about Matthew first before we get to our text. As many of you may know, it's, it's the most Jewish in flavor of all the Gospels. Uh, it has the uh, most quotations from the Old Testament. If you're, if you're a Gentile, you don't care about Old Testament quotations because you don't know the Old Testament. But Jews knew the Old Testament, right? It um, didn't explain Jewish customs. When you read Matthew, there's not really explanation of the customs of the Jews. The other Gospels have them in there because they're writing to people who aren't Jewish and they need to explain why the things are going on like they are. But Matthew also presents Jesus as a king. Matter of fact, the very first verse of Matthew calls Jesus the son of David, which is a royal title. He's, he's a king. Son of David is a, is a title for a king of, of Israel. In, in chapter number two, the wise men ask Herod, who is he who is born king of the Jews? In chapter number three, John the Baptist announced that the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Well, if you're, if you're going to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king too, right? And he announced that right before Jesus walked on the scene. In chapter number four, uh, Satan tempts Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world. Many of uh, Jesus' parables are designed so that Jesus is the, the, the king or the son of the king in, in, those, in those parables. And so Matthew presents Jesus as a king. And the Jews... They were, they were looking forward to the coming Messiah, the, the anointed king. They knew that the Messiah that was to come was in a, to be a king. But they had two wrong ideas about who this Messiah was. And these wrong ideas govern their expectations. The first wrong idea is that the king will rule a temporal earthly kingdom by overthrowing the Roman rulers. Overthrowing the Roman rule over the area and uh, they would take that over. The second wrong idea that they had was that, that the Messiah would rule a Jewish state with geographic boundaries. And, and Matthew corrects uh, the, the Jewish misunderstanding in his gospel. If you remember the history of Israel, all the way back in Exodus, God made a covenant with them. And the covenant was this. You obey my words, and I will bless you. You disobey my words, and um, you will go into exile. It didn't go so well for Israel, did it? it? It didn't go well for them at all. And so what is fascinating about Matthew then, in the first seven chapters of Matthew, Matthew present, he takes great pains to present Jesus as the perfect Israel, the perfect son of Abraham. You can see that in that the, the pattern of Jesus' early life roughly matches the history of Israel. Just like the patriarchs, 
Jesus had a surprising birth. Think about Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. Those women gave birth when, when they were past the age of having children, didn't they? Well, the birth of Jesus was even more amazing in that Jesus was born of a what? He was born of a virgin. So he, he was of a surprising birth. Um, in Genesis, Israel's family fled to Egypt to preserve their lives from the famine. Remember that story about Joseph? Joseph went ahead. Uh, Jacob and his sons followed when there was a famine and their life was preserved. In Matthew chapter number 2, Jesus' family takes him to Egypt to preserve his life. Right? In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus goes through the water in baptism just like the children of Israel went, they were baptized in the Red Sea when they crossed the Red Sea. Remember? Were, the, the Egyptian army drowned. The children of Israel made it through the Red Sea just fine. And where did they go as soon as they went through the Red Sea? They went into the wilderness. Where did Jesus go right after his baptism? He went into the wilderness. Now, while in the wilderness, Jesus remained obedient in the midst of temptation. But what happened to Israel? They failed miserably, didn't they? We also see that in the book of Exodus, Moses receives the law on a high mountain, Mount Sinai. Remember the mountain was covered with fire and smoke and clouds, right? But in Matthew chapters 5 to 7, Jesus gives his law to the people on a mountain too. We call that the Sermon on the Mount. And so there was law giving going on as well. And so Jesus succeeded in every way that Israel failed. Thus he became the true and obedient Israel. But in Matthew, Jesus redefines the exact type of kingdom and who the children of Abraham really are. And I had you turn to Matthew 1, but I want you to hold your finger there and turn real quickly with me to Matthew 3. We'll read one verse, then we'll come back to our text today. Matthew 3 and verse number 9. Now what, what Matthew does is he shows us that the kingdom that's coming, the kingdom of heaven, is not a Jewish state. And Matthew also shows us that the true children of Abraham are not Jewish. They're not always Jewish. Maybe, maybe I should put it that way. Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse number 9. This is John the Baptist speaking. He said, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, I have the power to make children of Abraham anyone I want. And with all this as a background, let's, let's read our passage today. If you'll stand with me, we'll read Matthew chapter 1. And the first six verses here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the son, father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, 
and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this uh, short little passage of Scripture. I pray that you will impress on our heart the, uh, the spiritual principles that um, you teach in Scripture. And I pray for anyone who may not know Christ as their Savior, that today will be their day of salvation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. I bet when you woke up this morning, you thought to yourself, I hope that Jared preaches from the genealogy today. Well, um, there are four names in this genealogy that are important for the passage today, and I want you to see this very quickly with me. The four names are these. In verse number uh, three, you have Tamar. In verse number four, five, you have Rahab and Ruth. Verse number six, you have Bathsheba. Uh, in the text, she's called the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So we have four women in the genealogy of Jesus. And the rest of them are Jewish men. The first three women are Gentiles. We know that they're Gentiles for sure. The last woman, Bathsheba, had a life surrounded by rumors and death and heartache. And she possibly was a Gentile as well. Yet all of these women were honored by the Lord by being grafted in. In the case of three of them, married into the kingly line. So let us take a look at these women in this genealogy and maybe ask ourselves, why did, did um, God have Matthew mention these four women and no other women as we look at the genealogy today? So I'm not going to have verses on the screen like I normally do because we're going to be telling stories today. If you will follow along, turn to Genesis chapter 38 and we'll look at Tamar. Now this is a very... Uh, um, trying to think of the right word. Um, brain fog, I'll think of the word in, in just a minute, but uh, you'll get the idea as we get into it. But in Genesis 38, Judah is the son of Jacob or Israel, whatever you want to call him. The son of Israel married a Canaanite woman who gave birth to a son named Ur. There's a good baby name for 2024, Ur, if you're looking for any. When he was of age, his father found a wife for him. Now remember the culture of the day was that the father found the wife. I am so thankful that didn't happen. Because I remember when I was a teenager, my dad saying, well, you know, so-and-so, she's really cute. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, dad, no. But uh, <laughs> anyway, that's, that's another topic of discussion. But verse number six is where we're going to pick up the story. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Verse number eight, but Ur was wicked, and Ur's, but, um, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. So Ur, um, in Genesis 38, verse number seven, he was not a good person. We learned this a couple weeks ago. God says, I, I make alive and I kill. He killed Ur, right? So as the custom was, Judah told his second son, Onan, to go in and perform a Leverite marriage. This is a Leverite marriage is something that needs to be explained because we don't practice it today, and we're all going to be thankful for it once we learn what it is. 
So Leverite marriage is this. It was very important to continue the family name, the family line. And in the custom of the day, the oldest son carried the family line. So the lineage is almost always through the oldest son. Well, if the oldest son died without a male child, then if the, the, second, son, the second son, whether or not he was married, would marry and go into his sister-in-law and perpetuate the family line. So if he was married and had children and he went into his sister-in-law, the children that he had with the sister-in-law were the ones who would perpetuate the family name. And so it was, it was actually a sort of a, a self-giving gift in, in essence because his own children are not going to get the, the firstborn's inheritance. It's going to be the, the children by that other woman. And, and so this is, this is the custom of Leverite marriage that we see going on here. And so let's continue in verse number 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Notice that word offspring. Offspring is incredibly important in the book of Genesis. Offspring is mentioned more in Genesis than any other Old Testament book. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Gritty, that was the word I was looking for. It's a very gritty story, isn't it, so far? Okay. Now the next verse sets up the plot. Now Judah is thinking, all right, this woman Tamar, she's radioactive. He's not thinking in terms of, yeah, I've just got two really bad sons that God was displeased with. And so Tamar must carry some sort of uh, curse. Verse number 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Now, a couple things. One, he never had any intention of son number three marrying her, okay? Secondly, uh, in the custom of the day, if a woman was given to a man in marriage and the man died, then it was the responsibility of his family to take care of her. She was in that family. You, just like today, but more so, you married into a family. And so they would marry into the family. It was Judah's responsibility to take care of her, but what did he do? He, he sent her back. Uh, that, that was the signal right there. I don't really want anything to do with you, but I'm going to try to do something that's somewhat socially acceptable in the day. Now, she realized that he had no intention of giving this third son to her in marriage, and so she hatched a plan to have a son. Now, in the course of time, Judah's wife died. After the period of mourning, he went to shear the sheep, and the sheep were a long ways off. It wasn't like he went out to the field right next to his house. It was a couple days' journey to wherever he was uh, shearing the sheep. And Tamar got word of it, so she dressed as a temple prostitute, and um, he saw her and decided to go into the temple prostitute in that town. 
Um, when they went, when he went in, she demanded a payment, and he didn't have anything to pay her with, and so she said, "I want a pledge from you." And so she asked for three things. She asked for his signet ring, she asked for a cord, and she asked for a staff. Now, fascinating thing about this is the staff. When we think staff, we think of just a plain piece of wood. And, um, you know, it's kind of like umbrellas, you know, where they have the umbrella things. People's umbrellas get mixed up, right? That's not the way it was with the staff. The staff was um, a sort of your life story. It was a business ledger. So if you, in the custom of the day, if you took out a loan, the terms of the loan were written on the staff. If you had a contract, the contract was on the staff. And so a staff would literally tell a person's life story by what was on the staff. So this is a, a very, there, what she asked for gave people no doubt who this stuff belonged to. So three months later, Judah finds out that she is pregnant. She's pregnant by her father-in-law. He doesn't know this yet. And he determines to burn her. Now remember, she is supposed to be in his care. So he's double-minded. He, go live with your mom and dad instead of taking responsibility for, wait a minute, what? You're pregnant? All right. The custom of the day was this. In the father's house, if the woman became pregnant, that was adultery and she deserved to die according to the law of the day. And so he's kind of playing at both sides, isn't he? Uh, Judah is. And, and so he goes and, and he says, bring her out so that we can kill her. When she came out, she carried some items with her. Let's pick up the story in verse number 25 of Genesis 38. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So he, he admitted to it, right? Well, let's look at verse number 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Now remember, children are a blessing. We learn that. God opens and closes wombs. This is a blessing. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread to his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Perez from the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter number one. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Now, why of all the women that were in the lineage of the, of the king Jesus did Matthew decide that this woman decide, needed to be in the lineage? Think about it with me for just a minute. There's not much commendable about her actions. She's, she's a child of her culture, isn't she? She, was, she took matters into her own hands. She acted with deceit. She committed incest. Judah was also a, a child of his own culture. There was not much commendable about his actions either. 
He went into someone who he thought was a prostitute. He didn't follow through with what he was supposed to do in taking care of his daughter-in-law. Neither one of them were very good people in that regard. But God included her child, born of adultery and incest, by the way, into the line of the king of kings. Isn't that amazing? Let's go on to the next story. Turn to Joshua chapter number two. Joshua two, Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Now, let me set this up as we're going to uh, Joshua two. The children of Israel are about to go into the promised land. They've been 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua sent two spies to Jericho to spy out the land. Now, Deuteronomy 7 and Deuteronomy 20 are important texts in that those two chapters, God tells them not to make a covenant, not to intermarry, but to devote all the Canaanites to destruction. They were not supposed to let any of them live. Okay? They went now, let's fast forward to uh, Joshua 2. The spies went into the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they hid there. Let's pick it up in verse number 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who enter your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Lie. And the gate was about to be closed at dark. The men went out. Another lie. I do not know where the men went. Another lie. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she laid in order on the roof. Now, what do we know about this woman? Well, she's a prostitute. The Hebrew word for prostitute there means adultery. She's an adulterer and her occupation most likely is prostitution. Not only that, we see that she lied to protect the, the two spies. Now, we could, we could have all kinds of discussions about that one, Christian ethics. For example, is it right to lie to preserve a life? Or is it just less wrong to lie than to preserve a life, or than, you know, to let somebody die? Or what, what's the Christian ethics? That's a whole nother sermon, and we won't get into that. But the fact of the matter is, she lied to protect these men. Now, what I want to focus on is she makes an absolutely amazing statement. And we're going to pick it up in uh, verse number 9. Verse 9, she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. They knew, everyone in Canaan knew that God had given the land to Israel. That was common knowledge. They all knew. Let's keep reading. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, who you devoted to destruction, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, and in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now this is a stunning statement. Do you know that she quotes the Bible? 
There are two direct quotes. Look at this uh, verse number 11 again. For the Lord your God, he is God. Direct quotation of Deuteronomy chapter number 4, verse number 35. And another, another place in Deuteronomy as well. And then she says, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a quotation of Exodus 20 in verse number 4. Deuteronomy 4 in verse number 39. She knew the Bible. Isn't that fascinating to you? There is no doubt that not only she knew the Bible, but many of the Canaanites also knew what the Bible said. Isn't that fascinating? And she quoted scripture. How she knew these verses, we do not know. But the combination of her words and the fact that she hid the spies shows us that she was doing a lot more than just saving her own skin. In, in essence, this constitutes her statement of faith. Of course, we know that she was saved and she saved her household. Hebrews 11 says this, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the, the spies. James 2.25 tells us that the outworking of faith was the saving of the spies. Here's what it says. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now, something you must see in here. There, there's two things. First is that she was saved by faith. She may have lied. She may have been deceitful, but she had faith in God. Now, what does the Bible commend? In, in, 11, in Hebrews 11, she is commended because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies. In James 2.25, she's commended because she um, saved, received the messengers and saved them, told them, hey, look, go another way. Go up into the mountain here, stay in the cave. After three days, you can go home. She's commended for saving life, not for lying, right? But the outworking of her faith is these actions. That's the fruit. So we've seen two Gentile women in the lineage of Jesus whose character, they're not stellar. The character is not stellar at all. But the next woman we're going to had tremendous character. Turn with me to the book of Ruth. Ruth, and she's another Gentile woman. She's a Moabite. Most of you know the story of Ruth, I would imagine. Uh, in, in Ruth, the book of Ruth begins in chapter number one. A Jewish family from Bethlehem, they go to Moab because Israel is experiencing a famine. And so they leave the house of bread, Bethlehem, and they go to Moab, a foreign country, to receive their sustenance. The patriarch's name is Elimelech. Elimelech is not very, um, his spiritual eyes are not very good. Let's put it that way. He has a son, Malon, and he has a son, Kilion. Malon marries Ruth, Kilion marries Orpah, and the, uh, Elimelech's wife's name is Naomi. And so what happens? While they're over in Moab, in the course of, 
a few years, we don't know how long, Elimelech, the patriarch, dies, Malon and Kilion both die, so you have three widows in Moab. Widows in that day didn't have social security, insurance, or anything like that, and so when you were a widow, you were destitute, you were dirt poor, and that's where they were. The Bible says that they heard that God had visited his people and gave them food. That's the, that's the quotation. So Naomi decided to go back to Bethlehem, and, and she told her two daughters, stay here. Orpah did. Ruth said, no way. Now, why would she want them to stay there? There's a couple reasons. One, if they go with her, that's going to be a burden on her, right? It's not just one mouth to feed, it's three. Two, she knows that Moabites are not going to be well received in Israel. Because the Moabites gave Israel trouble when they're, when they're in the wilderness trying to get into the promised land. Ruth, though, had outstanding character. And rather than being a burden, she came in and she did everything she could to help her mother-in-law, didn't she? Naomi. Let's pick up in verse number 11 of chapter number 2, because her character became known through the whole community. The whole community took note of it. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me, and how you left your father and your mother in your native land, and have come to a people that you did not know. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And so now we're introduced to Boaz, who recognizes her character. Now, who is Boaz? Boaz is a, is a kinsman. He's a, he's a relative. He's very wealthy. And he had these fields. And one of the ways that um, Ruth, um, Ruth was trying to provide for her mother-in-law, Naomi, was to go out and glean in the fields. And this is how it worked. When a man had fields and people were working in the fields, the, the, the rules were that you didn't glean all the way to the corners of your field, the edges. And you would leave the parts of your field along the paths with grain so that the poor people who needed to survive could get enough grain for themselves to survive. And that's what Ruth was doing. Ruth was going out every day during the harvest, and she was gathering grain for her for her mother-in-law and her because they were destitute boaz saw this and commanded his workers to do what you remember start when you wherever ruth is just start throwing some down so she can get more and naomi was amazed at how much she brought back because of the the generosity of boaz boaz was an outstanding man but there was one more thing about him. He was also what we call a kinsman redeemer. Now let me explain that because it's similar to the Leverite marriage thing. The Leverite marriage stays within the family. In other words, uh, it's if a brother dies, then the other brother marries the widow, right? And so on. Leverite marriage works this way. Let's say a patriarch dies and all the boys die. Then, a kin, then the important thing for Israel is that God gave them the land. 
when they, when they came into Israel, every tribe got a plot of land, didn't they? You can see, you've seen the tribal divisions in your maps, in your Bibles. And then within each tribe, the clans and the families got divisions. And that land, God said, I'm giving you this land. It stays with you. You don't sell your land. Well, if, if the boys die, then that land is going to go to someone else who can buy that land. Because the, the, there's, no, there's no genealogy to pass that land down to, and it's going to be removed from the family name. So the kinsman entered the kinsman redeemer. And here's the way the kinsman redeemer worked. If there was a relative who was not in the immediate family, who was generous enough to do it, he would marry the widow and have a child with the widow, and it would keep that in the family line. The problem is that he had to pay for that land, and then the land wasn't his. It was the family. You see, it's in a way, it's a losing proposition, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to buy these uh, five acres, and I'm not going to get my money back because I'm buying the five acres so I can give it to her so that the family line through this child can keep going. Well, there was a closer kinsman than Boaz, but he didn't want it. He didn't feel like it was a good deal. It wasn't a good deal in a way, right? But Boaz said, I will marry Ruth and continue the family line, even though he already had his own children. Now let's pick up the story. Um, and we're going to go to Ruth chapter number 4, verse number 13. Boaz redeems Ruth in order to continue the line of Elimelech and uh, Malon. And God blesses the marriage. And the Bible says this, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So, so the Lord did this. The Lord blessed that marriage, right? Verse number 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. So now this Moabite woman is in the lineage of King David. And that gives the perfect introduction to the next story, which is the story of Bathsheba. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 11. We'll look at 11 and 12. Everyone knows the story of David and Bathsheba, right? So it was in the spring of the year when the kings go out to battle. Uh, they were fighting the Ammonites at this time. And David is supposed to go out with them. And for whatever reason, he did not. I don't know if it's because of complacency or uh, indolence, laziness, or what, but he didn't go out to battle. One day, and, and the way the Bible narrative, um, well, let's, I'll, go, I'll, I'll skip that. That'll be for another day. But he's, he goes out on his rooftop, and he's looking down over the city. Now, the palace in that day was on top of the hill, and it looked down on the city of David. Now, hold, I know we're at Christmas time, and everybody knows that Bethlehem's the city of David, right? Okay, except that there was a region of Jerusalem called the city of David. You can go there to this day. It's a very steep hillside, and when you stand on top, you can see every roof because it's that steep. David was at the top of the city of David looking down, and he sees Bathsheba bathing herself. 
Now, a couple things about that. Number one, it was just right after her um, period of uncleanness, and it's, it's a ritual purification that she's doing. Number two, she easily could have made it to where nobody could see her bathing. Those are two facts. Please don't send me an angry email that she's an innocent victim or whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to portray her any other way. It's just the way it is, okay? She could have prevented people from seeing, but for whatever reason, she did not. David saw her, he lusted after her, and he took her, and he committed adultery with her, didn't he? Well, who is this woman? Her name is Bathsheba. Her, she's married to this guy named Uriah, who's a Hittite. Uriah was a righteous man. By the way, Hittites were some of the people that they were supposed to destroy and move off the land, but he was a righteous man. God didn't destroy him. Or God, they didn't destroy him because he was righteous. Secondly, her father was in the upper echelons of society um, in Jerusalem. He was a he was a, a commander in the military, and he was he was very well known. So Bathsheba was in the realm of the rich and famous of Jerusalem during that time, and probably knew David. Okay. So David calls Uriah home. We know the story. Uriah would not go into, he was trying to do a cover-up. Nobody in government ever covers up anything, do they? Uh, the cover-up didn't work, so he ends up having Uriah killed. When her period of mourning for her husband's over, he takes her for a wife, and he's, again, he's trying to cover up the, the illegitimate pregnancy. Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, you're the man, the baby is going to die. Now, David is like all of us. David is a mixture of good and bad, right? Wouldn't you say all of us are that way? That we, we all have areas of our life that are not good. But we have very commendable areas of our life. Now, I think most of us don't go out and murder people like David. Um, and, and most of us don't go out and commit adultery like David. But we have areas of our life that are not as commendable. So it's a mixed bag, just like every person. Well, um, and I just completely lost my train of thought where I was going with all this. But Dave, oh, David, what he did then is he spent seven days fasting and praying for this child when it was born, but the child died. After a period of mourning, we're going to pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 24. This is what we read. David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. Now what is interesting about that? The Bible says that the Lord loved the baby. Had the baby done anything right or wrong at this point? He hadn't done anything right or wrong at this point. But the Lord loved him. But it's more than that. He loved a child of a questionable marital union at best. David already had wives. He had wives from the time of, uh, when he was the king of Judah. And he had wives for many years. And then he has this wife, who's basically um, the, the marriage and everything. It's just not a good marriage situation at all. And yet, God loved this child. Now, the jury's out on Bathsheba. 
We don't know if she was an innocent bystander and a pawn in all of this or if she was a provocateur. We really don't know. We can't read into the text. It's not good to read into the text, is it? But it's one of the two, or maybe even a combination of the both. The story is sordid, violent, and heartbreaking, but there's a demonstration in here, and that is this, that God does not condemn a child because of his parents. Isn't that wonderful to know, parents? And he loves Solomon. My question I want to ask is, is there a common thread with all of these women? Well, we know three of them are Gentiles. We know that they were outside the covenant people and did not deserve the blessings that were given to Abraham's offspring. They weren't Abraham's offspring. They married in. Two, Tamar and Rahab, came from very sinful backgrounds but received the blessing. Ruth, a Moabite, again, she was outside Abraham's offspring. She was outside the covenant, but she married into the covenant. And Bathsheba was outside the lineage of the king and married into the lineage of the king, right? That's the common thread. I'm here to say, we are all those women. We were all born outside the royal lineage, weren't we? We were without hope and without God. We were enemies who needed reconciliation. Let me get there. Romans 5, in verse number 10 and 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, so much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And listen to this. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, Jesus was born in order to reconcile his enemies. And we were all in need of reconciliation. Not only that, we were outside the covenant and alienated from God's blessings. Listen to Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision. In other words, the Jews, they had such disdain for Gentiles, they would call them the uncircumcision, which is made by flesh and hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise. And that describes every single one of us before salvation. Having no hope, and without God in the world. But listen, here's the words of hope. Ready? But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, because he was born, brought us near to God, the ones who were far off. Not only that, Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Galatians chapter 4 and verse number 4. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. He redeemed those under the law, the Jewish people, so that we Gentiles can receive that adoption. And then it goes on to say, here's the result. Listen to the result. Because you are sons, God has sent his, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, an heir through God. Amen? So not only is he our kinsman redeemer, but now we are heirs of the royal lineage because of what Jesus was done, has done. And because he was born, Jesus paid the bride price. Listen to a very familiar passage of scripture that's read at, at weddings. Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the payment of the bride price. He paid the price that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Listen, he paid the bride price, sanctified her by the washing of the water, and now here's the result. Here's the so that. So that he might present the church to himself. Listen to that. He paid the price to present the church to himself the bridegroom, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Dear child of God, one day, one day when this is all over, you will no longer be tempted to sin. You will no longer fight the flesh. You will be presented to Jesus without spot or wrinkle, holy and unblemished, and you will be that way forever and ever and ever. You will not need to hide your true thoughts, your true feelings, your true desires. You will not feel the shame that you feel when you sin, when you trespass, when you offend. All shame and all sin and all of that are gone because Jesus paid that bride price. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He brought us in the covenant blessings and he has reconciled us as enemies to himself because he was born. And so when we read these scriptures and we see throughout scripture the church described as the bride of Christ or, or the bride of Christ, we have been given to the son by the father and he pays for us with his life and such it is. And if we could take uh, Matthew chapter 1, the genealogy there, and those four women who were Gentiles outside the royal lineage, and you continued that for thousands of years, for the next 2,000 years, eventually that genealogy is going to include your name. Isn't that wonderful? And it's all because Jesus took on flesh, and was born a woman. We are all like those women whose names, just one name and a quick blurb in the genealogy 
that everybody skips over. Lord, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't know who here is saved and who is not. I don't know who is a child of the redeemed and who is not. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know Christ, whose sins have not been forgiven as of yet, I, I ask, Lord, that today will be their day of salvation because more than any earthly possession that we could gain, title that we could receive, position of employment or position in in anything that we could receive the most important thing is to know that in eternity we will spend eternity with christ as heirs of the king rather than eternity in hell being uh, punished for our sins for all of eternity so lord i pray that you'll impress on hearts those that are saved i pray that you'll impress on their heart the glory and the wonder of our salvation. In his name we pray, amen.